Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. Today we're exploring the 1984 unsolved murder of 29-year-old Dana Bowman. So there are some crimes that hit way too close to home. Maybe they involve someone you know, or maybe they just happen down the street from where you live or work. Whatever the case, that close proximity can be jarring. It reminds you that no one is immune from a horrific tragedy, no city or place untouchable. So every day when I drive to work, I pass by a business that sits on the corner of College Avenue and West Jessamine Street. It's across the street from an elementary school playground where I sometimes take my kids to play. I was even inside the business years ago when the previous occupants were having some kind of rummage type sale. Now this building used to be divided into various storefronts, and through the years it's been many things to many people. It's housed a drugstore, a health center, a grocery store, and a barber shop. Early parishioners of St. John's Church even held services there for a while. It draws your eyes. There's old religious paintings on some of the windows. The latest owner and occupant, a remodeling company, has had a beautiful sailboat mural painted on one side. But what I didn't realize until recently is that back in the mid-80s, that same building was the scene of a horrific crime. Now back then, the building housed a company called Baser and Reese. It specialized in custom-made slipcovers, cushions, and pillows, and Dana Bowman was a talented seamstress who worked there. Now, Dana was the youngest of two daughters of Dean and John McLaughlin. Dean says having two daughters was a dream come true for her. John said when he told me that we had another girl, I, he said, I've never seen you so happy. And I said, I was. That was the happiest time. And I sewed for him. And I made all their clothes and coats and everything. Dean says she didn't teach her daughter to sew, but obviously watching her mom lovingly sew her and her big sister all those clothes had a big impact on Dana. She just picked it up. She was she made her first dress when she was five. Dean remembers how an elderly neighbor who had known about Dana's desire to sew a dress had called the house one day with news that material was on sale at Mott's, a five-and-dime store. Thrilled, Dana dragged her mom to Mott's, where she bought her first pattern in the perfect material red with tiny yellow flowers. She cut that dress out by the pattern, and then she put that together, needle and thread. She did seams, you know, were needle and thread. And then the skirt was a circular skirt. I still have it. She got it all made, and uh, then Linda said something sarcastic to her. And that did it. She wadded it up and put it in the trash can. And I said, oh no, that is priceless. Dean convinced Dana that Linda was only kidding and rescued the dress from the trash can. Dana kept sewing, and by second grade, she decided it was time to wear one of those dresses she'd sewn to school for the very first time. Now, Dean admitted she was nervous. I mean, you don't want to send your child to school in a homemade dress and have it fall apart during recess. As a mom, I know the embarrassment and flood of tears that would bring. Her teacher knew she was doing it, and she said, let her wear it. I'll be the judge, and I'll watch it and make sure it'll be okay. And she wore it to school, and, and I parked at the door. I got up there early where I could park real close so she could just run out and get in the car. 
and she got in the car and she said, it didn't rip. <laughs> so she was relieved. So it was a success. It oh, didn't rip. Yeah, yeah, it didn't rip. As she got a little older, Dana started saving her money for her very own sewing machine. Dean remembers her daughter announcing proudly one Saturday morning that she'd raised enough money. They went to the store and Dana returned beaming, holding her new prized possession. I wish I had pictures of her sewing. She had it in her room, in the floor, and she was sitting, it was portable, and she was sitting in the floor and she had her back to the door so we could stand and watch her. And she was 10 years old and she had, uh, I don't remember what she was sewing on that, that when she got her machine, but she sat down and she had one knee up under her chin and the other one out here on the pedal. And she just worked. She loved sewing. Marty Smith met Dana at Eastern Hills High School. The two became such close friends that Marty began to look at Dana's parents as her own, calling Dean Mama and John Daw. Dana was just, just my bestest buddy. She was, um, well, we both just marched to different drums than a lot of the others. While still in high school, Dana and Marty used to model for a clothing store on East Lancaster. Later, the two young ladies would get dressed in the nines, I mean, long cigarette holders and everything, and run the roulette wheel at a speakeasy on Camp Bowie. Dana and I had these dresses. Mine was purple on one side and black on the other, and no sleeve on this side, long sleeve over here, and hers was just the opposite. And we would run the wheel. We both had this long hair, and we're just very attractive, we thought. so. Um, and like I said, those cigarette holders. <laughs> it was a time of, of limousines and la-di-da. It was just... Uh, it was just a really fun time. After graduating high school in 1972, the two later lived together at a little apartment near Texas Christian University. They spent nights at the Hop, the House of Pizza, listening to local musicians, their favorite pastime. When money was tight, they'd sell Coke bottles back to the grocery store, a nickel apiece, or clothes hangers to the dry cleaners, 10 for a nickel. Even when Marty later met and moved in with her first husband, she and Dana still spoke every day and frequently ate meals together. We never separated. We just, um, we stayed together to the end. And we would still be together. To me, her energy was like a, a, a fluffy Persian, white Persian kitten. That was Dana. She just gentle and precious <laughs> and uh, so thoughtful. Always thoughtful, thinking of others. When Marty was pregnant with her first child, a girl, she and Dana decided to decorate the nursery in a mixed theme of Harry Nilsson's The Point and Winnie the Pooh. She remembers how they painted the fabric by hand and sewed the curtains, creating a whimsical wonderland. Sadly, Marty's daughter would die during birth. When she passed, um, Dana was the one who went with me to pack all of that up and put it away. She was always there. When, um, when, when Daddy committed suicide, it was Dana who was there. And so um, she just, uh, she was a stronghold sister, uh, true blue. 
to the to the to the last. So Dana went to Tarrant County Junior College for a stint. She later got a job in reservations working for Southwest Airlines. It came with a pretty cool perk that she and a companion could travel standby to anywhere the airline flew for free. We'd get up on Saturday and get dressed and go catch a flight to somewhere for breakfast because that they encouraged her to, the girls working for them to do that. So while John played golf, Dean remembers her and her daughter jetting off to San Antonio for breakfast on the Riverwalk. Another time it was brunch in New Orleans. Marty would go sometimes with Dana. Other times she traveled alone. Now it was during one of those quick trips that Dana would end up meeting Bob. And she liked to go to the coast. And so she'd fly to Harlingen and she met him at the airport in Harlingen. And brought him back here. Marty recalls at the time Bob was working on oil rigs out in the Gulf. I was very leery of him. It, it was a whole lot of flash. Um, I tried to understand him. He had a very weird sense of humor, of being. Um, one year on my birthday, and Dana came over with a fabulous present, and he brought me a dead plant. So Dana would quit her job at Southwest Airlines and turn her focus back on sewing, eventually landing a job at Baser and Reese, owned by Noah Baser and his partner, Pat Reese. Noah was a kindly older man, an old world slipcover maker and former upholsterer who lived just a couple of houses down from the business. Later, she'd start her own slipcover business called Silver Threads at a white stucco building that was once a gas station on Park Hill Drive. But the business didn't make it, and she later returned to work at Baser and Reese again. And at some point during all this, Dana and Bob get married on April 15, 1980. Now, it was well known to Marty and even Pat Reese that there were issues in Dana's marriage. Bob apparently suffered from some kind of mental illness. Now, Dallas County court records show he'd actually been on probation for aggravated robbery when he and Dana married, but was released early from it in 1983. Marty didn't know that, and suspects Dana didn't either. Pat didn't like that Bob carried a gun. She remembers him as manipulative and phony. But I had met him, and I did not, uh, I, I did not want him around. He was, he was a scary individual. Both women say Dana had confided to them that Bob was abusive. But she'd always put a different twist to it. She didn't want me to know. No. You know, she could leave hints. I had absolutely no idea how, how evil it was. There's no other word for it. Just plain evil. Marty says she experienced firsthand that evilness on January 18th, 1984. So on this particular night, Marty had gone over to Dana and Bob's. The couple were living in the historic Hanley neighborhood in East Fort Worth at that time. We were going to go out and play. We were going to go listen to music and just be silly girls. We were primping when he came in on us. Marty remembers how she had electric rollers in her hair. You know, the old-fashioned kind with the big teeth to hold them in place. First, Bob comes in and he's just being real silly which scared Dana to death. And, uh, and then it turned real quick. 
and uh, he wow. telling us we weren't going anywhere, that that was his wife. Mm -hmm. and, um, so he grabbed me by the rollers and uh, I threw my keys at Dana and told her to go call the police. And she went out the front door. And then he um, just kind of did a waltz with me. This threw me on a table, dining table, pulled the rollers out of my hair, and uh, proceeded to beat me and tell me that she wouldn't go in anywhere and that if he couldn't have her, nobody would. And they would never catch him. Marty says she'd been wearing a full-length leather coat that night, which fortunately helped protect her from some of Bob's blows. But it couldn't protect her head as he repeatedly kicked her with his work boots. Dana drove to a payphone on Lancaster Avenue where she tried to call for help. She came back and actually traded herself for me. And uh, she came into the house and then she did that. He took her and threw me out the front door. And I just climbed in my truck and, like I said, I laid on the horn and I would just roll back and forth in front of the house with that horn blaring. And finally the people to the west of her came out and uh, got me out of my truck. They had called the police. When police arrived, Bob was arrested. According to the police report, Dana told the responding officers that he'd been violent about one or two times prior and had previously been in several mental institutions. Marty remembers Bob sitting in the back of a patrol car, beating his head against the car's window. Marty went to the hospital and would eventually have to undergo two surgeries to repair the damage to her face that Bob had inflicted with his work boots. I wore his boot print in my forehead for some time. He crushed, stopped my forehead, crushed both cheeks. I had no nose. So Bob was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, the weapon used being his boots. For Dana, the assault on her friend proved to be the last straw. Days later, on January 24th, 1984, while Bob was still in jail, her parents accompanied her to the courthouse, where she filed for divorce and sought a temporary restraining order against Bob. They brought Bob over from the jail. I remember that was, that was hard. So Dana, now 29, moves back into her childhood home with her parents. And as the weeks go by, she's focused on looking forward in her life, not back. In her spare time, she plays second base on a co-ed softball team with Marty. She starts seeing a new man. And she's got her work. Sewing slipcovers was like an art, and Dana, a talented artist. Her work filled the homes of impressive clients, like Fort Worth's own prestigious Bass family. She had white satin slipcovers she'd made for the Wyndham Hotel. Her slipcovers, when she went to work for Baser and Reese, they just didn't look like slipcovers at all. It looked like it was a post trade. And she did the Bath Girls' rooms, bedrooms. It was just like walking into a little fairyland. By the time Dana had started working back at Vaser and Reese the second time, Pat Reese had actually left the company to start her own business, but she still occasionally stopped by the shop. She remembers how she and Dana once made a hat together for Noah that looked like a birthday cake on a plate. 
Now, Pat says the way Baser and Reese worked is that most of the contact with the public happened outside of the shop. They'd go to the customer's house, pin fit and cut the material for the slip covers there, then come back to the shop to sew the slip covers. So unless it was people making deliveries to the business, or maybe Dean stopping by to take her daughter to lunch, there wasn't a lot of visitors to the shop. The rest of the building at that time was made up of art studios, with artists sporadically coming and going. So it wasn't unusual for Dana to be the only occupant of not only the shop, but the whole building. But Dana never seemed too concerned about this. I mean, after all, Noah lived just a couple houses away and was frequently in and out. In fact, on the morning of March 12, 1984, a Monday, Noah had been at the shop that morning, but left about 9.45 a.m. to take his wife to a doctor's appointment. He would later tell Dean that Dana had looked so happy that morning. He said she came in and she was just, he said she was higher than a couch. And he said, now I don't mean that, you know, and he had to explain that it was just that she was enjoying life. When Noah left, Bowman's Oldsmobile was parked right out front along the curb. He would later tell police he'd assumed that Dana had locked the front door behind him, something she usually did when she was inside alone, especially since filing for divorce from her husband. So roughly 90 minutes after Noah leaves the business, Fort Worth fire dispatchers receive a call for help from the shop. I need some help. I'm dying. Hurry. Help. Help. It was Dana on the line, gasping for breath, trying to tell a fire department dispatcher her address. When emergency crews arrived at the business, Dana was still conscious but bleeding profusely. She had several stab wounds to her face, neck, and chest. The autopsy would later note eight distinctive incised and stab injuries to her body, one of which punctured her left lung. There was a large amount of blood on the linoleum floor a few feet from the front door. Her latest sewing project sat unfinished, her sewing machine still on. Dana was only able to tell a firefighter that a white man kept stabbing me over and over before being whisked to John Peter Smith Hospital. Paul Kratz had been a detective in the homicide unit for about four years when he got the call out to the Baser and Reese shop. I was in the office and I got a call about a stabbing on College Avenue. Uh, at that time, they said the victim was still alive, but in critical condition. So Dean and John McLaughlin were away in Florida when Dana was attacked. John, who owned a book match company, had a conference and Dean had tagged along so they could turn it into kind of a mini vacation. Dana had taken them to the airport that Saturday. Dean remembers all kinds of details about that last car ride with her daughter. How Dana was sitting in the back seat, and how when she turned to say something to her, Dean accidentally knocked a Coke from Dana's hands. How John, who was never sick, had a cold that day and seemed irritable, prompting Dana to ask if it was really wise for them to be traveling. Dean assured her daughter he'd be fine once they were on the plane. And then when we got to the airport, we hugged her and kissed her and told her we loved her and all that and left. That Monday, while John was attending the conference, Dean chose to stay behind in their hotel room and read. She remembers she read a magazine article that day about a family who had lost their daughter to some kind of tragedy. She never imagined she was about to find herself in a similar situation. When her husband later returned to their hotel room, his voice was hoarse. He told me what had happened, and he just said, uh, Dana's been 
stabbed. John told his wife Dana was in the hospital and that his company had arranged to fly the couple home that evening. I said, John, that won't do. We've got to go now. And he and I got on the phone and called the airline and told them what had happened and we've got to get out of here now. The couple rushed to the airport. Dean stopped at every payphone she saw in the Florida airport and later in Atlanta where they had a layover, trying unsuccessfully to get a hold of the family doctor in hopes he'd go to the hospital. Anything to give her daughter a little comfort until she could get there. The flight was excruciatingly long. John encouraged his wife to eat something, saying she needed to keep up her strength so they could go straight to the hospital when they landed. She remembers the airline served German chocolate cake for dessert, which she had wrapped in a napkin and just shoved in her camera bag. And how the passengers around them, evidently aware of what was going on, remained seated in their seats upon landing so that Dean and John could get off first. You know, we couldn't wait to get off the plane. Just get us there and let us get off. When we got there, we didn't want to get off. We both just stood there. And we were afraid to get off. And I said, John, if there's a group there, then we'll know she's gone. And if there's, if Glenn, his business partner, I said, if he's there by himself, then I think she's okay. That means we're going to the hospital. We knew Glenn would take care of it. So we got there and Glenn was there by himself. And we got off and he started taking us around the hall. And I said, Glenn, is she okay? And he said, no. They were too late. Dana had been pronounced dead at 3.10 p.m. that afternoon. So Dean and John wouldn't go to the hospital that night. In fact, it would be weeks before they went to JPS to meet and thank the doctors and nurses who'd worked so hard in trying to save their youngest daughter's life. In all, Dana had been given more than 60 pints of blood. They cared so much, but they told us about her and she was losing more blood than than they could give her. Instead, the couple were taken home that night her friends and family members, including their oldest daughter, Linda, were already gathered. Dean remembers how, after everyone else had left for the night, she crawled into bed with Linda at her husband's urging. She needs you, John had told her, but there'd be no sleeping that night. At two o'clock in the morning, I was awake for the rest of the night. And all of the things that I thought about, oh, and you know that we'll never see her again. That was the hardest part. So the investigation proved challenging from the start. Because Kratz was never able to interview Dana for himself before her death, his only clue to the killer's identity was the snippet of information that Dina had been able to tell a firefighter. Her attacker was a white man. Clearly, Dana didn't know who her killer was or she would have said his name. So Kratz says there was no signs of forced entry into the business. Dana hadn't been sexually assaulted, And while her watch, purse, and keys were missing, her killer had left behind the murder weapon, a 10-inch screwdriver that he'd apparently picked up from a work table in the shop. Police found bloody fingerprints on a knocked-over chair inside the shop that they thought the suspect may have touched. Through the years, they've entered those prints through a national database, but so far, there's been no match. Also missing was Dana's old green Oldsmobile that had been parked outside. 
Now, despite the fact that this murder happened in broad daylight in a business that was surrounded by an elementary school and houses, and that the killer would have likely been covered in Dana's blood, nobody saw a thing. A nearby resident had reportedly been on her porch that morning, but had either gone back inside or was facing away from the shop when the attack occurred. It was a very tough case. We, we never found any witnesses. <clears throat> we had a general description of the car, but because her family, her parents were out of town, we couldn't get a license number quickly. And it just, you know, it was the perfect storm of everything that can go wrong. Uh, so, we, you know, we were looking for a green, large car, but that's all we had. Dana's car would be found the next afternoon, abandoned on the side of the road in the 2600 block of Vista Street in East Fort Worth with a flat tire. The location, east of the Sycamore Creek and just off Beach Street, was 3.9 miles from the slipcover shop. I canvassed that neighborhood, walked in and talked to everybody I could find out there to see if anybody had seen anybody around that car. Uh, nothing. So the car was processed for possible fingerprints, and while it yielded some evidence, it also is yet to lead to a suspect. So desperate for information, Kratz even asked Daggett Elementary to assemble together the school's hundreds of students some of whom may have been at recess just 150 feet away from the shop when the attack occurred. Kratz told the kids that he was investigating a crime and trying to find out who took the green car. I just got up there and basically told him I was looking for anybody that might have seen the green car that was parked across the road there at the corner and if they saw anybody around it, particularly a man. Uh, you know, just real generic stuff trying to get some information without planting it in a kid's head uh, you know something they didn't really see but I, I just thought it was worth a shot unfortunately it didn't pan down and do anything so the shop sits on the southern edge of the fairmount neighborhood and while today this historic neighborhood just south of fort worth medical district is considered one of the top neighborhoods to live in with its gorgeous bungalow houses and close access to trendy restaurants and bars on magnolia avenue Back in the mid-80s, it hadn't yet experienced its revitalization. There was a lot of run-down places. It's, it's just a block or so off of Hemp Hill Street. Uh, there were a lot of street people that, that frequented that area. Uh, you know, it was just a, a neighborhood that uh, had been around for a long time. It's seen better days. Now, near the shop at that time, there was a bus stop. Kratz theorizes Dana's attacker may have been waiting at that bus stop when he spotted Dana and saw a crime of opportunity. There was a bus bench out there on the corner that I, I think played prominently in it because it appeared that she had gone out to her car for some reason, whether she was going to lunch, forgot something, whatever. It appears she went out to her car and then came back in and, and my theory has always been that the suspect was probably outside possibly sitting on that bus bench saw her go to her car and then followed her inside and attacked her whether it was for purposes of a sexual assault or a robbery or both don't know because her phone number was still the listed emergency contact on the building Pat Reese would be the first one called by police. They told her there'd been an incident at the shop and asked her to come right away. 
It wouldn't be until she arrived that she found out that Dana had been attacked and saw for herself evidence of the bloody crime scene. She was very sweet and she was an artist and I don't think she ever raised her voice to anybody that I know of. And she did not deserve to die that way. Pat remembers seeing bloody drag marks on the linoleum floor where Dana had crawled to the phone to call for help. She'd later find Dana's shop keys on the floor in a corner under a light switch. I think she used to get up and run to the door when she heard anybody knocking or anything. She did keep it locked, but she would run up there and take hold of the door with one hand and the keys with with the other and open the door probably without looking first to see who was out there. We, I think there was a curtain on that door. But, um, but why those keys were in that corner, I do not know. Noah would take it upon himself to clean up the shop once it had been released by the department. Dean says she later asked Noah's permission to visit the shop again. She felt she needed to see firsthand where it happened. She remembers despite Noah's best efforts, there were still traces of the violence that her daughter had endured. There was blood on the phone. There was blood on a lot of things. And, uh, but when Noah came in, he explained a lot of things. And uh, I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he stood that. And, but he cleaned it up. Now, perhaps it's only natural that Marty and some other suspicions would immediately be cast toward Dana's estranged husband. I mean, after all, Dana had only filed for divorce from Bob two months earlier. Plus, she'd previously confided in friends and even to police after Marty's attack that he'd been violent before. But at the time of her murder, Bob was still in Tarrant County Jail, charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in connection with the attack on Marty. Uh, Naturally, one of the first things we look at on a case like this is is a spouse, boyfriend, whatever. Uh, he obviously had a pretty good alibi being in jail, but that didn't mean that he didn't have someone, you know, to do this. The, the separation uh, had been pretty, you know, there was a lot of animosity. Kratz said he interviewed Bob, who appeared distraught over Dana's death. He was pretty upset. Uh, yeah, I, I spoke with him several times, got him out of jail, uh, actually polygraphed him to, you know, just to try and see if he may have had anything to do with it, knew anything about it. I was pretty firm in my belief that he did not have anything to do with it. So Dana's funeral would be held on March 15, 1984, inside the Polytechnic United Methodist Church. Life is measured not in lengths, but in depth, with, with pain almost too much to bear. We've talked these days about the brevity of Dana's life. But we've talked also about the depth and substance of her life. The memories flowing like tears. This beautiful daughter, sister, friend, with the eye of an artist, with those remarkably skilled hands, the almost too tender heart, and yet resilient and strong, and the very clear and special promise of her life. It had been an open casket that day, 
With Dean and John's blessing, Marty had been the one to take on the difficult task of dressing her best friend and putting on Dana's makeup. And I don't even know that they had to ask me because I said, well, I have a dress for her. I have my pearls, which she always loved. So I want to go dress her and I went to put on her makeup because she would just come back and haunt every one of us if those eyelashes aren't separated. At the funeral home, Marty would see for herself Dana's stab wounds covering the visible ones with makeup. She said before she'd even laid eyes on them, she already knew where they would be. That night I came home from the hospital and I'm in my little bathroom. I felt every stab wound that she had. It was the other reason I had to be the one to go to the funeral home. That's where they were. Every wound I had felt I can't explain that. It was just some, we were like one person. Marty chose an orchid color, silky and chiffon dress that she and Dana had bought together in Dallas. They shared clothes often, and this had been Dana's favorite. Marty's ex-husband, a hairdresser, came along so that he could do Dana's hair. I just wanted to be with be with her because I by the time I got to the hospital the day she was murdered she was gone for Dean it was the first time she'd seen her daughter's body since the killing what stood out most to her was her daughter's fingernails Dana had worked so hard to take care of them keeping them long and painted when we saw her for the first time after they got her to the funeral her fingernails were cut I mean straight across just and I it just crushed me I just thought bless her heart what happened well the police do that that and but I wish somebody had told me that beforehand so on the same day that Dana was being buried Bob was appearing before a judge inside a Tarrant County courtroom in downtown Fort Worth in connection with the attack on Marty he pled guilty to the lesser-included charge of assault with a bodily injury in exchange for one-year probation. He was prevented from contacting Marty and Dana's family. That December, prosecutors filed a petition to revoke Bob's probation. The reason, according to that petition, is that Bob had been arrested in November for carrying an illegal knife, a dagger. He'd also failed to report to his probation officer, pay court fees and restitution as he'd been ordered to do. His counselor wrote a letter in support of Bob to the judge, which is included in the court file. He tells the judge that Bob had demonstrated a real desire to overcome his personal tragedy and to help himself and others. Still, in February 1985, the judge revoked Bob's probation and sentenced him to six months in jail. The unlawful carrying of a weapon charge was dismissed. He has not been incarcerated in Tarrant County since and appears to no longer live locally. My recent efforts to reach him were unsuccessful. Now, 1984, the year that Dana was killed, was an especially deadly time for women in Tarrant County. There were a series of disappearances and unsolved murders of women in the mid-80s, many in southwest Fort Worth. Oftentimes, the women were home alone when they were killed or stranded with car problems when they disappeared. It was so bad, Fort Worth police created a task force to investigate the cases as residents began to worry that the murders and disappearances might be the handiwork of a serial killer. 
Was there ever any consideration that hers could be linked to all well, those cases? Not, not, not serious consideration, but you know, obviously she fit the general profile. You know, she was a young, attractive female, but beyond that, there weren't any other similarities. So, no. Kratz says it was about a month after Dana's murder that the case went cold. He didn't give up on it. He even released Dana's call for help to the media, hoping that compelling audio would draw in more tips. He made sure Dean and John knew when it would be aired so they could shield themselves from hearing it. Dean says to this day, she's never heard it. It wouldn't help at all. It would just hurt that much more. Dean says she came to quickly learn that grief was both emotionally and physically painful. She sought the help of a counselor and a support group, Parents of Murdered Children, and she and John leaned on each other, sometimes even when that meant just sitting and crying together. She knows they couldn't have survived without each other. As the years went on, I could talk about it, and I didn't, I didn't cry as much. And we said we shed enough tears already, but it was something. We, we, and, but we looked over our shoulder for years. John had a weapon by the front door. He had his gun by the front door. He said, I couldn't prevent Dana's death, but I'm sure not going to sit still and wait for another one. So, and Linda, when she'd come to Fort Worth, we didn't want her out of our sight. For years, Kratz kept Dana's case file close at hand from when he was a detective to when he later promoted to sergeant and became supervisor over the homicide unit. I kept it in my desk drawer where I could have easy access and go back, flip through it occasionally just to see, you know, is there something you missed? As years passed and technology advanced, Kratz and later other cold case detectives made sure evidence in Dana's case, like blood drops and cigarette butts, were re-examined for other possible prints and DNA. When arrests were made in connection with other murders from the mid-80s, detectives always compared evidence to see if there might also be a match to Dana's case. They looked at Lucky Odom, who would be linked by DNA to the rape and strangulation of Catherine Monroe, a medical student found dead on a Fort Worth elementary school playground. And even though Curtis Dawn Brown was black, they looked at him too after he was linked and ultimately convicted in the sexual assault and murders of three women two in 1985 and one in 1986. And while no link was ever made, Kratz's work on the case did lead to a close friendship between himself and Dana's parents. They'd meet for dinner sometimes, visit each other's houses. Kratz even had Christmas one year with the family at Dean's twin sister's house. When he ended up retiring from the police department, Dean attended his retirement party. She once told a reporter that she's grateful for all Kratz has done but I wish to hell I'd never met him. Kratz acknowledges that having such a relationship with the family members of a murder victim whose death you're investigating is unusual. I worked cases for a long time, and generally you try to maintain enough distance because it it can eat on you. Uh, you know, you get start having personal connections with people, and yet you can't deliver you feel like a failure you know I mean I I failed at my job I didn't find out who did this still hadn't found out and that's really hard to face them you know knowing that but you know they're just 
for whatever reason, we kind of bonded and, you know, we still stay in touch from time to time. Today, Dana's immediate family consists only of her mother. Dana's older sister, Linda, died in July 2002 from cancer. Her father, John, who had battled cancer repeatedly after Dana's death, died in 2003. Both are buried next to Dana at Shannon Rose Hill Memorial Park in Fort Worth. Dean scoffs at the idea that Kratz somehow failed the family. She says she and her husband leaned hard on Paul and that he went above and beyond for them. She remembers when a creditor called the couple from New York, hounding them about an unpaid bill of Dana's. She mentioned it in passing to Kratz, who took it upon himself to contact the creditor and inform them of Dana's death so they'd stop pestering Dana's parents. He did things like that that he didn't have to do. Dean says a supervisor once promised her and her husband that Dana's case would never be on the back burner. She feels that promise has been kept, and even though the case hasn't been solved, that Kratz and others have done all they can through the years. Even after he retired, I felt like if they ever had anybody a suspect of any kind, he'd be there. Dean says if an arrest ever happens, she'd just be sorry that her husband wasn't alive to see it. If they find somebody, I want them to, but I would be sad at the same time that John's not here. And because we've shared so much. Kratz says he's talked to some of the cold case detectives through the years about Dana's case. He knows they're still trying to solve it. So will we get lucky one day and somebody gets spit out of the database? God, I hope so. <laughs> I really do. But I really think at this point it's going to take somebody getting a conscience, either somebody this piece of shit told, or them realizing they're on their deathbed and getting religion and wanting to clear it up, which I don't care how it happens. You know, I'd, I'd like to know and I'd like to be able to tell her mother. Um, if I'll ever get to do that. If you have information about the March 12, 1984 murder of Dana Bowman, please call the Fort Worth Police cold case number at 817-392-4307. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Steve Kaufman, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.